Welcome to the War Room. Ryan Ray here reminding you that this show is listener-supported at warroommedia.com. You can sign up for the free option, but if you want to support the show, that is where you do it. And oh, by the way, we will be rolling out YouTube episodes, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. Again, warroommedia.com is where you stay up to date with everything, communicate with me, see all of the past episodes, warroommedia.com. Now, let's get to the show. Michael, welcome to the War Room. Thanks. Good to be with you. Okay. Well, let's get into it. Um, Obviously, uh, Russia does dominate the news, but you have an interesting and I like to say provocative title when I come across provocative titles, Inside Putin's Brain. Um, That's a tall task. (laughs) Why did you think that you were the one that could crack that nut? So... The title refers to this Russian philosopher, activist, and ideologue named Alexander Dugin. Mm -hmm. A lot has been written about him in the last few years, really since 2014, because he was seen as one of the key sources for Russia's ideological legitimation. And the title plays off an article that was called Putin's Brain. I think it was in Foreign Affairs 2014. So once Dugin's role as a ideas guy for Russia was established, I thought that there would be an opportunity for the people who want to learn more about what he actually thinks and why he thinks it to go, quote unquote, inside the man known as Putin's brain mm-hmm. uh, into the depths of his political philosophy and the depths of his political theory. So just to be clear, uh, the book is not so much about, you know, Ukraine or not so much sure. about Putin even. It's really trying to understand who's this person and not even like who he is, you know, biographically, but like he himself has said, his biography is his bibliography. So we learn about him by learning about his books. And uh, that's what I tried to do in mine. Yeah, absolutely. So you might take, um, if you're studying Reformation history, you might take a, a second generation reformer, but to get in their brain, you might reference Calvin or Luther or someone like that to understand the vantage point of how this person would have thought. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, There's a sense that Russia and the West have some sort of geopolitical tension. I think that's kind of clear. There's a sense that there's a, in the cards, there's like a war over the meaning of the world order. You know, what's the shape of the world after the victory of global liberalism? But behind all of that, there are some fundamental disagreements about values, morality, about the nature of political life and things like that. So Mm -hmm. I find it important. Dugan's not the only person we should study seriously, but he's one of the more helpful people to study in order to try to understand Russia, not in order to understand even a certain interpretation of the Russian position, because there are Russian liberals, there are Russian communists, you know, there are other kinds of Russian statists, there are Russian racists, there are all kinds of thinkers that represent Russia, but Dugan is an influential um, kind of interpreter of what it means to be Russian and why Russia should go differently from the West. So, yeah, my general idea is we study intelligent people, whoever they are, wherever they are, because how else could we possibly understand anything? Yeah. And that's I'm glad you brought that up because we do talk about this theme on the show a lot, which is uh, if you're studying history that's you know far off from us many, many years ago, um, someone might come out with the definitive book. And what happens is we start to say things that are really talking about overarching narratives, but it doesn't get the nuance and the perspective that you really need to flesh it out. It's it's impossible to write an exhaustive history because that would just take to me (laughs) an immeasurable amount of of volumes. But we kind of get this thing to where we say, oh, well, we understand Russia because of this. And in the news today, you would see Russia is doing this because of that. And that perhaps that is one facet of why Russia is or isn't doing something. But there's all this backdrop that makes it very hard for us, especially in the West, who don't speak the language, don't understand the culture, to really tap into that. So let's let's let me set the the place for Dugan um, for our listeners who aren't familiar with him. When was he alive? When you know what was his era? What was he doing? How was he viewed by his peers at the time? And besides, kind of the modern uh, the, the the Putin pun that you kind of use, who else is influenced by him? Okay, so it's an interesting question because a lot of the times when people study political scientists or political uh, figures, they're dead, you know. But Dugan is alive, so he's a living thinker. A lot of the controversy around him, I think, is the fact that he is still alive and influential. And not too long ago, there was an assassination attempt, presumably on him, that ended up killing not him but his daughter. So he's he's a living figure. He's a controversial figure. He's under sanctions by several governments. 
But he's, he's not, not that old somebody. either, right? He's only like in his 60s. I think he's in his 50s. I think he's, he's in his 50s. Yeah. So, so he's that's not, right. he's not so, like Minomsky, who's 90. He's, he's still got a right. long yeah, runway ahead of him, potentially. That's right. And he's been writing since the 80s. Uh, during the end of the Soviet period and then at the collapse of the Soviet Union, looking for an alternative to the victory of liberalism. So he has a key set of questions that interest him as a philosopher, as a religious person, as a Russian, again, as a kind of orthodox, uh, a type of orthodox Christian thinker, but also a traditionalist. He wants to know, well, he wants to know, okay, the philosophical impulse generally is to try to want to know everything comprehensively. So the way that's reflected in Dugan's thought is that he has books on myth, on sociology, on geopolitics, on philosophy, on a variety of other topics. He was translating out of the Italian when he was um, start, starting out. He was translating certain traditionalist authors out of the Italian. But the basic idea is this. You could say at a very simple level for people who don't want to go into the weeds, he's an anti-liberal thinker. So he does not like either extreme left-style liberalism, like progressivism run amok, or even individualistic free market capitalism type liberalism. So he's opposed to the typical Western models in that sense. And he's a defender, you could say, of pre-modern movements. So he writes about Plato and Aristotle. He's a defender of the world that the modern world replaced. So there's something pre-modern about Dugan's political philosophy. But he also is somebody who's open to the consideration of postmodern authors and tendencies. So just like Plato is important for him, so too is this German philosopher named Martin Heidegger. Now, that's something that I wrote a lot about in both of my books, a book on Heidegger and a book on Dugan, because Heidegger's interpretation, excuse me, Dugan's interpretation of Heidegger complicates the picture. So some people, let me just give you this sketch. Some people, they're like, we don't like the way that the world is. You know, men have become effeminate and universities have become horrible and nobody's reading great books anymore. And what we need is to return to the classical world. And it's all about going back to the pre-modern classical ancient Greek model, in some case, Roman model. Some other people, they say, you know, the modern world is so bad, we need to sort of finish it off by going in the opposite direction, by completing modernity, going in the direction of the postmodern. Dugan's somebody who thinks that the best way to deal with modernity is on two flanks. You should use the best resources of the ancient world, as well as the most thoughtful resources of contemporary philosophy, psychology, sociology, and so on. So he, he has this mixed, you know, grab bag approach to the analysis of things. But look, I was the first, I was one of the first people to translate him into English. I've been involved with the translation of several of his works. So it's not like there was a huge uh, industry of Dugan scholars before the works were available in uh, English. Most of the people who are writing about him were saying, here's this like crazy far right kooky Rasputin, uh, you know, like a lot of a lot of name calling. Sure. More name calling than serious analysis. Yeah. But the serious analysis is where we stand to learn something. Um, but yeah, he's just to be super clear. He's alive. He's an imperialist thinker. He's pro-Russian. He's pro-Putin at the moment. Doesn't like the West. Wants a multipolar world with Russia being one of the great powers. And he mixes his activism, his ideological rhetoric, and everything else he does with a basis in philosophy. That's the part that interests me the most. Okay. And so I want to unpack that for a second. He's You, you said that um, he's not been translated uh, until recently, and you've kind of been one of the leaders in that effort. Um, and there's been characters of his position by people who would comment on him. One of the things that, as I've talked to you know, smart people like yourself who study these brilliant thinkers, is I keep hearing this thing about how we talk about, pick someone here, uh, Chomsky, Plato, Dugan, doesn't matter. How we talk about them and the ideas that someone like me, a, a non-educated person might say, is not really representative of what the higher level thinker actually thought. And so by the time it gets to me, it's really not. It, it, there's there's some shades of it, but it's actually not Dugan or Calvin or Plato. Do you is that kind of right. what you're touching on there? Yeah, absolutely. And look, this is a more general problem. So I've been reading recently this book from the 1920s by a guy named Walter Lippmann. The book is called Public Opinion. And Lippmann mentions that there are so many obstacles on the way to us having an understanding of the world. The world is very complex. Information about the world is sometimes censored. Some of the information is not, not uh, within our reach in the first place. It's extremely complicated. It can require all kinds of specialized knowledge. Plus, 
for a regular person to want to understand a difficult political theorist, they'd also have to have not only the aptitude, but the interest to the time, the capability, reliable translations, you know, a lot of historical knowledge. So by the time what a person says gets filtered down to what a person hears, there have been so many obstacles along the way that sort of uh, reduce the resolution of that image. They introduce a lot of noise into the signal. And that's why you're left off typically, not just with Dugan, but with very many things, even like eyewitness accounts of a, you know, of an event or of a crime, even trained, trained observers even don't make very reliable eyewitness uh, accounts. Why? Because to see something clearly is difficult especially when what it is you're trying to see is a complex phenomenon like a complex phenomenon like world affairs you know ideological struggle mm-hmm. or the works of a great author so definitely dugan is one example of many of a person who's thought get filtered down i'll give you another example i teach several courses um on plato take plato's republic a very famous and brilliant book but for many people even that's been simplified to well plato was a proto-communist because there's a part of the Republic where he talks about women and children and families and property being common. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, don't read Plato because he is that's, you know, you're two steps away from communism. Other people read the same book. The proto-fascist. <laughs> don't read because you have the rule of the philosopher king and you have eugenics and stuff like that. So it's like, don't read Plato because you'll either become a communist, which is no good, or you'll become a fascist, which is no good. And then, you know, you lose all of the splendor and magnificence and brilliance of the book. But you can sort of understand it. There's shortcuts, you know, and we need shortcuts to get through this world. But, you know, we also have to understand what we're losing along the way, what we're missing. And sometimes it's worth just doing the extra effort. So in the case of Plato, it definitely is. In the case of Dugan, I've argued over the last 10 years that it also is. Well, we have our kids reading. I don't know if they're reading Republic. They read, my oldest uh, read Herodias um, um, last last year or maybe this year. So, um They've read the Odyssey, some of that stuff. So they're, they're reading some of that. So hopefully they don't become communist or fascist. I'm, you've got me concerned now. No, a kid, a kid. Um, but it, it does raise an interesting point, which is 600 years ago, would the average person wouldn't have even probably considered reading Plato, I guess, unless they were higher level society, could have had a, 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 a nice well-to-do education. But the common person probably wouldn't have ever thought about reading those books, if I had to guess, where today – where the literacy rate so high, we have so many people who can read and you have so many more opinions. Is that part of the problem where we've talked about these shortcuts to where so many people can now weigh in on Dugan or Plato or whoever it is that it's kind of made it tough to disseminate the information? You know, it's an interesting point because on one hand, like a teacher that I really admire and have learned a lot from Leo Strauss has said, he said, the aspiration of a democracy at its highest level is to become like a universal aristocracy. So the fact that learning is widespread and available, people could in principle go on YouTube and watch, you know, a very intelligent lecture about a very great book. It's within reach. But the fact that it's technologically within reach obviously doesn't mean that everybody wants to do that or wants to go there, especially because you have a competition with a million other human desires, all of which have their own place. You know, like just desire to be entertained, for example, right? You're not necessarily entertained when you read a difficult book over a long period of time. You may be... Uh, instructed by it, but not necessarily entertained by it. So yeah, more people know, quote unquote, know, or have heard about certain ideas and certain figures and need some way of characterizing them without actually doing the work of studying them. So again, that all, that all is fine in a sense. It's natural and it makes, it's, you know, it's not a problem in a way, but Mm -hmm. there is a problem when people whose business it is, whose responsibility and obligation it is, to do the serious study of, uh, you know, important thinkers living and dead, when they don't do that, you know, when they sort of reproduce some sort of a knee-jerk, automatic, dismissive, Mm -hmm. uh, insulting approaches, then that's a problem, you know? So I can't necessarily expect the common man on the street to have a great interest in Dugan. Although, by the way, he might, you know, he genuinely might, because people do try to understand, like, what is, you know, why should I care about Russia? What is actually going on, you know, with with what I'm hearing about Western values and stuff like that? But still, let's assume that your typical man on the street doesn't necessarily have to care about Dugan. But why not the foreign policy establishment? Why not people whose business it is to make sure that we don't stumble our way into a world war, you know, or who are trying to exercise some strategic empathy at the negotiating table in order to get, you know, results that they want? So there are different ways we could formulate the problem. I don't mind if, you know, the... A person doesn't have to care about Plato or Dugan, but there are some people who must, 
because mm-hmm. it's their nature. It's the nature of their work and their position and their obligation, you know, to know those things. Yeah, no, 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 that, that, that's good. It's, um, this will come out, this episode hadn't come out, but there's, um, there's two episodes where we've talked about, um, from my perspective, one of the biggest problems we have is the either or fallacy, right? Mm-hmm. And so much of discourse is based upon, and now that's probably confirmation bias on my point, of course, but, but, but if you turn on popular conversations, it's either Dugan is, like you said, he's either a fascist or a communist or he's either, or not Dugan, but Plato, um, either this person is great or bad. The, the war in Russia and Ukraine, either someone's right or someone, else. there's no nuance to flesh it out. And to me, that that strips the beauty of of these conversations because when you when you think about it um kind of abstractly about what's going on it, it it becomes murky it becomes tough the other thing is someone like dugan who's still alive or chomsky who's still alive they're not dead so their thought is it done <laughs> and people contradict themselves they change their opinion new perspectives shape them we've seen this through uh, popular figures throughout history and so how do you balance all of that trying not to commit maybe a confirmation bias or an either or fallacy when you're talking about Dugan, uh, but also understand that there's probably a trajectory. I'm guessing you're the expert, a trajectory in his writing, but sometimes he deviates or sometimes he says something new or surprising or uh, does it make sense for this larger body of work? Yeah, both of those points are very fair. That's true that authors develop and change and they may say one thing and later situations force them to say something else. I can give you a clear example that in 2014, when Russia had not yet fully invaded Ukraine the way that uh, in his interpretation, let's say they're doing now, he wrote an article in a book critical of Putin called Putin versus Putin, basically saying that Putin hasn't yet decided whether Russia is European or Eurasian. He's on the fence. That's better than his predecessors because his predecessors thought that Russia was just European, which would be the um, basically death for Russia if it identified as European. So Putin helped by at least sitting on the fence, but Dugan was still pretty critical of him for not going all the way. And then the situation changed and now he's, you know, you could say supportive of him for going further than he did then. So there's a development, in other words, or a shift and change in his thinking. But even if there were not a change in his thinking, okay, even if what he thought in, in the 1980s is exactly what he thought in 2023. I think the more serious problem is the first one you mentioned, that you have a very quick and easy way of categorizing the world. People need ways of categorizing the world because otherwise it's not possible to function in it. But as I say, you know, you always have to be aware of at what expense you're doing that. So there's the People know the saying, the devil's in the details, but the devil's not the only thing in the details. You know, that there is much more in the details than the devil. There's beauty, there's nuance, there's light. There may be angels there. There may be, there, there may be salvation in the details. So if people avoid the details by thinking that it's, it's only for the devil, that's not true. Uh, the more nuanced our picture, and it's also, look, when a person, I was reading this in Walter Lippmann as well, when a person loves something, let's say as like a, is an aficionado or connoisseur, right? He begins to get into the nuances of it. So a person who doesn't care about cigars, they won't know the difference between a Cuban cigar and, you know, a cigar that I wrote, you know, that I just put together from grass out of my backyard. But you give a, you give a cigar aficionado 10 different Cuban cigars, and he'll tell you they're 10 very different. Each of them has a different flavor profile and so on. Because as you become a lover of something, you pay attention to the differences. So what's missing is that people have to love understanding. They have to love learning. They have to love making sense of the world. And then you won't have to force them to find the nuance. They'll do it just as eagerly as a cigar lover finds nuances of cigars, car lover finds nuances in cars, and so on. So that's why I find that the question of education is so central. It's why I have an online school that tries to inculcate a love of learning. That's what drives the interest in the nuance. If you don't have that, then you don't, then it's not a problem. You just put everything in one bucket and move on with your life. How do you balance writing about Dugan, thinking about Dugan when he's still alive? Whereas if you were to take someone who's dead, you would have obviously the primary source potentially to have a lot of, a lot of that. And you'd have all the secondary sources around them. How, how do you balance that with Dugan? Because he's, he is the primary source and he's alive but he's being influenced by these sources that you can also see that are alive and the ones that come before him are dead. So how do you, do you, do you think about that at all? Or do you say, no, no, this is, this is where he's at. And I'm just kind of checked uh, dealing with that trajectory. Yeah. So I'm, I know that the fact that he's alive, it has been relevant in my work on him because 
older thinkers are seen as less threatening than live, you know, dead thinkers are seen as less threatening than living ones, even when the older thinkers are still, they can be controversial, they can be politically incorrect, they can be hostile to our uh, precious opinions, you know, but still, the fact that he's alive, it has made things somehow more, uh, more interesting and more complicated at times. But it's also been good because I was able to interview him, for example, on my YouTube channel and just ask him the questions that I had in mind. And I interviewed him prior to that in print about his interpretation of a certain philosopher. So to be able to ask because he's there, you know, to be able to ask him to clarify some things in a way that you can't necessarily do if you're just reading Plato, all you have to work with is what Plato wrote. But with a living thinker, you know, you can listen to the interviews that he does or even pose him questions yourself. So that's been something. Um, I haven't thought too, too much about what it might mean, you know, for him to be, you know, for the situation to be different. Like if he had just, if he had died, let's say last century or something like that, and I was doing work on him. But the key thing for me is it's interesting because he continues to produce material. And then I can see like, what's his interpretation of this event? You know, has he changed on this one? Or is he still saying, is he holding fast to his line? Mm -hmm. And probably, as I say, the ability to have interviewed him, that's something yeah. unique and distinct. Um, I just know, like I faced, I don't know if your, your listeners know or necessarily uh, care, but I did face some blowback for my work on Dugan at one point. And I always thought that that would have been much less if he had been like, not alive. You know, the fact that he's alive, <laughs> relevant, and somehow still influential on the world stage to such an extent that governments have sanctioned him and that Amazon, for example, has banned his books. That tells you that, oh, okay, there's a, there's something that people are concerned about. And uh, you just, you get caught up in that because, um, because he's a contemporary figure. Yeah. Um, so a couple of things are taking notes. Um, we're in a weird spot in the sense that you can go watch the mainstream media interview uh, Jeffrey Dahmer or Ted Bundy or whatever people who actually were vicious, cruel murderers, Saddam Hussein. I mean, you can go find these interviews on, on YouTube. Um, some of the, some, some just terrible humans who have been interviewed. And yet when you get outside of kind of that, that mainstream space into the world that we're in, you almost feel like you get more blowback for doing controversial interviews. It's like, well, the predecessors before us led the charge by interviewing people who were controversial. It's not an endorsement of views. I have all sorts of people on this podcast, whether I agree, right, left, communist. I don't, I mean, I'm just here to understand, to try to learn, to hear, um, ask questions. I'm, again, I'm a high school graduate. I'm not a, a college student, not a PhD. I'm trying to learn. Um, that means I agree. Learning doesn't equate agreeing though, right? I can learn from Dugan without agreeing from him. Um, but it, it is weird to, that that we feel that pressure. We get that blowback from having on guests that are controversial. But I'll be quite honest: if Saddam Hussein was alive, he'd come on my podcast. Yeah, I would. I would have him on. Like there, there, there's, there's. I would have Kim Jong Un on, Xi Jinping, Donald Trump, Joe Biden. I'd have Putin on. To me, it's a very weird thing about that living you talk about, because mm -hmm. at a certain level, NBC has interviewed Putin. At a certain level, it's like, oh yeah, that's just part of the culture. But in our realm, and you're obviously a uh, an academic scholar, it's a lot different for you. But we still feel this weird pressure <laughs> to talk to people who are controversial. It's like, well, why is that? I don't understand that. That makes no uh, sense. a pressure not to talk to people who yeah, are controversial. Yeah, yeah, not, not, yeah. yeah, not to talk to. Them, sorry. Yeah. So yeah, it's strange, right? It is strange. Like only talk to people whose views you already accept. You know, only talk to people that you can't possibly learn anything from. Uh, you know, only talk to people who confirm what you already. Mm -hmm. think you know about the world mm -hmm. so if you contrast that with the alternative which is like talk to people that you could potentially learn something from talk to people that in disagreeing with them you may find you may become more convinced about why they're wrong or why you're right or vice versa you may have to so it's it's not good that there's a hostility towards conversation but i guess the concern is that you know there's always been a concern in public education or in, or in the question of like, what are people allowed to hear? If they hear something that gets them to believe differently than the way that we want them to believe, mm -hmm. then that's a bad thing. You know, in other words, censorship has always been a part of politics. Censoring opinions that run against the political orthodoxy has always been a part of political practice. But it always runs 
like against this other urge, the urge to learn something, the urge to express freedom of thought and freedom of speech and freedom of inquiry. So it's not an easy thing in some sense, you know, it's not an easy thing. Um, it's yeah, it's not an easy question. Like, should everybody's opinion about every single topic, no matter how horrible it is, and no matter how horrible they are, be aired? So for example, you said there were conversations with like uh, serial killers and things like that. Maybe there are cases like that where you say, you know what, probably would have been better without the interview. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe we don't want, you know, um, a glorified interview with the serial killer that makes, you know, where he comes off very slick and smooth and, mm-hmm. uh, and even attractive in some sense, mm-hmm. you know, so, but on the other hand, if you're dealing with, you know, an author or a philosopher or a writer or a thinker, or an artist, or, you know what I mean? Then you're like, okay, but even there, the questions come up. So I don't want to, I don't want to defend the view or like, uh, let's say represent the view that there's. I'm for absolutely no constraints under any circumstances. Everything goes all the time. No, I mean, there, there are sometimes legitimate reasons to wonder whether something should or shouldn't be censored. But, you know, on a case-by-case basis, uh, I think the general pressure, like you say, right, only talk to conformists, never talk to somebody who thinks differently, censor all the opposing arguments, punish anybody who follows them, uh, even if they proved to be right empirically, like, mm-hmm. or, or in the case of Dugan, somebody who obviously is demonstrably relevant for a, right. a political a task of understanding Russia, like to have his books taken off the market and to punish people who are trying to understand him is pretty reckless. Yeah. And, and, and I think there's a fair question that you bring up about having serial killers on and glorifying them. That's a, that's a fair question to ask. Um, but when you get into these other things, um, philosophy, science, um, et cetera, the question of epistemology has to come up. And how do we, you know, and so you start asking that question and you really start pressing on people about epistemology and what they think they know. You, you find that most people, myself included, we really don't know as much as we think that we actually know. And so you get to this real debate of, well, you can't talk to this person because I understand this person's wrong. He's like, well, well let's press in on how, how do you know that? Well, because someone else said they're wrong. It's like, well, how do you know that they, you know, so you're talking the, it, it, it's like, well, the, so those questions to me, it's fine to have that discussion. I'm, I'm with you, but, but also I'm a little bit leery that um, you talk about that, that uh, thing about epistemology that we don't know nearly as much as we like to pretend that we know. And so you kind of get in this debate of, uh, oh yeah, we know this guy's bad. It's like, well, how, how let's just go through that. Yeah, that I definitely agree because um, a lot of what we think we know we quote unquote learned or adopted from somebody who also didn't necessarily do the work of finding out for sure. Mm-hmm. And what you have is a kind of rumor mill, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I, I know what Plato wrote in the Republic. Okay. How do you know it? Cause this such and such a person told me, how does he know it? Yes. Cause he read it in some book written by somebody else who wrote, read Plato. You end up being so many steps removed mm-hmm. that for sure the question arises, well, maybe I need to see for myself. And that desire to see for yourself, to understand for yourself, to work it through for yourself, to think it through for yourself, that's crucial. That you're less, I'm not saying we're infallible, but somehow like in order to see, when you try to see for yourself, you're less likely to go astray than if you rely on a very questionable chain of authority or a very questionable chain of transmission. And it's part of part of the impetus of a philosophical education for sure is to try to know for ourselves, to try to see for ourselves. Uh, and there's probably in, in in some way, no better way than just asking, talking, studying, listening, right. Without all the intermediaries in place. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like I've had, when I, uh, when I was at the university, which I no longer am, um, I had students who would have an interest, let's say in this figure or that figure, Never mind Dugan. Okay. The other figures, um, but they'd been told, or, you know, their professors had said, Take even Peterson, a kind of, I don't want to call him, he's not a trivial example by any means, although I wouldn't call him as problematic as uh, Dugan is in this context. But some people were like, look, I kind of like something that I heard Peterson say. I kind of want to look more into his thought, but, you know, I'm being cautioned or warned or I've Mm -hmm. heard so much about him. Mm -hmm. Okay, you've heard so much about him, you know, you still, if you find it interesting, go read it and see what you can learn from it. Um, Yeah, but those pressures, they're pretty insidious. Like anything that gets... People, it's about controlling what people can think. It's about controlling what people can say. The only, like, how can I put this? 
I know that there are some well-intentioned and okay, fine. The road to hell is paved with good intentions, but still there are some, it doesn't mean, so that doesn't mean the road to heaven is paved with ill intention. You know, there are some people who are like, look at, it's true. If not, everybody can think everything through on their own. I don't think my car through on my own. I take it to a mechanic. I don't think my computer through on its own. I take it. Yeah. Right. So that means there is some question of the responsible transmission of ideas and the responsible how could you put it? Not suppression, but you know, you don't necessarily want everybody to hear everything. If if you don't think that each person is going to think it through, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So again, it's almost like among those people who really do care about understanding for themselves, there should be fewer restrictions. Yeah. Well, and and I won't say the date that we're recording this. This will be out in a few weeks, so people won't be able to figure it out. But there's a topic trending on Twitter right now. And I was on it this earlier today and I was watching people react to this thing with the ability to discern a lot more than it's actually being given. And I'm like, I'm like, this is the, this is the problem. Perhaps your theory is right. I don't think so. Perhaps it is. Um, Mm -hmm. And so you, you watch that. And I I do think you're right that that the, I'll pick on the media for a second. Um, The media, the commentators, especially will say, have kind of lost that ability to say, okay, let's just pause here. What do we know about this? Here's fact A, B, C. What conclusions can we draw? Not many, <laughs> not many, but it's it's far more uh, lucrative to, to to jump the shark, if you will, and, and go over here and say, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? Like, yeah. And so I think that's, I think we see that, and that's kind of seeped into society, um, definitely in some spots of academia, it seems. But I do, I'll, I'll go back to Dugan, Dugan, because I have some more questions on that. Are you concerned that your writing is influencing him? No, I don't think so. I have translated his works both in direct translation and in writing about it, you know, like restating, conveying, mm. analyzing and all of that. So I think the uh, the direction of influence has probably been to people who are learning about him rather mm. than him being influenced by anything that I've written. I've just tried to pick up on certain threads in his thought that I thought weren't really well treated by other people. But mm. no, he's, uh, you know, he's a mature, educated politically active person in Russia who has many other sources of influence. He doesn't need to learn from a Canadian philosopher half the world away <laughs> doing his own thing. Um, but you're one so of the I don't, I doubt, I doubt him, it. But may, I don't know, maybe, but I doubt it. But I'm sure I know that some of his students, I know that some of the people yeah. who follow his work have benefited from my expositions. But uh, yeah, I would very much doubt that, you know, I've in any way influenced his thinking. I've just tried to understand it and explain it. You never know. Would would that change your work if you realized he was reading what you're writing about him? So you're reading his, so he's reading you write about him going, hmm, yeah, I didn't tease that out well. Or why did he think that? Let me go back and re- rewrite that. Would, would that change what you do at all? You know, uh, it wouldn't change what I do as far as I can think about on the spot. Because again, on the spot, what I try to do is to understand and explain and draw connections that I think are relevant. But uh, something that, for example, is very important to me that I don't see in his writing is the influence of this scholar, Leo Strauss. So both Strauss and Dugan, they write a lot about Plato and about some other figures, but a little bit differently. If I could exert any sort of uh, reverse influence on Dugan, just in this hypothetical example, it would be to get him to consider this scholar, Leo Strauss's interpretations of Plato as a possible you know, as something well worth his attention. Uh, but again, I don't, I don't think that's happening. I don't foresee that happening. I haven't written in a way that would make that happen. But I can imagine a world where some of Dugan's students, for example, who hadn't studied Strauss, start to study him, just like here, people who study Leo Strauss, but have never heard of Dugan, I know that I've influenced them. So mm-hmm. I can imagine having the opposite effect, um, you know, on people on the opposite side of the equation. But look, um, whatever else Dugan might be, is many things, okay? He's many, you can see him in many different lights. But whatever else he might be, he's definitely thoughtful about big philosophical kinds of questions, you know? Whether we agree or disagree with what where he lands on them, you know, whether we have criticisms or don't have criticisms about what he says, he's a serious thinker. And serious thinkers, they're attracted to other serious thinkers. There's a kind of kinship of philosophical minds across space and time. Mm-hmm. It's what allows for people who are on opposite sides of a political conflict 
to still find a kind of intellectual kinship with one another. Because somehow the the interest in serious thought, it transcends the lower conflict. Yeah, absolutely. A little bit. I, yeah. You know, yeah, across yeah. space and time. Yeah. No, they're, they're, you can see that where they, they can, yeah, it's, it's, it's weird to kind of watch how they can appreciate things that you're like, I don't know how you, how do you appreciate that? I don't, I don't understand it, but they, but they do. Being that you're, you're, well, I'll just say this slight pushback. If his students are reading you, then, then on some level you, you are, I'm not being critical, but on some level you do have some influence on him, even if it's on the margin, because if his students are reading you and they're influencing him just by connection to him, then, then there is some at least peripheral influence that you can, you can take credit for. So we'll give it to you. <laughs> Fair enough. I don't know. There could be, as I say, I, I am motivated by a certain set of questions. I know sure. he's motivated by a certain set of questions. And then the, the, in, the students who work as intermediaries, that's, you know, for them in some sense to work out what they think is most important and what they, uh, what they give and what they take. Okay. So when you're reading him and you're writing about him, you're trying to interpret him, get his thoughts on stuff. You're, as we, you know, he's alive. So you're living through these same events. How do you strike the balance of, okay, he said X, Y, Z about this event. I, I think he's off his rocker in this case. I don't know how he sees it. Uh, I mean, I read the argument four or five times, retranslated. I, I got what he's saying, but it's off. How do you hold that idea, assuming that that happens from time to time, um, with how you view it that might be a complete 180 and then still be fair to his opinion of it? Because I would see that being hard to not want to be maybe shade his opinion a little bit or be critical or or more charitable just because he is alive and you can see the same thing that he sees, but you just see it so differently than he does. Yeah. It's a general problem as well as a specific one. The general one is how can you be fair to a position that's not your own? You know, what does it mean to be fair to a position that's not your own? To somehow to be fair to it, you want to give it all the credit you possibly can, you know? It's very easy not to be fair to a position that's not your own, because the automatic way to say is this stupid, you know, dismiss it. I'm right. That's wrong. All those things. So the general question, I think, is like, how do you be fair to a position that's not your own? And it's a real problem. It's a problem, for example, that Dugan himself has written about. He says that to truly understand the thought of another thinker, you need a certain kind of operation. He calls philosophical empathy. You have to be able to enter into the other person's thought fully but without losing your own identity. So imagine that like, you know, I don't know, Mission Impossible style, you know, Tom Cruise has been lowered down from the 50th floor <laughs> to the ground floor. He still has a thread connecting him. Mm -hmm. So even though he's on, you know, he's, he's in this Mission Impossible of understanding somebody else's thought, there still has to be a thread connecting him. The difficulty is when the thread snaps. When, if the thread snaps, then you're completely in the other person's world with no possible escape. But if you never lower the thread in the first place, then you're completely in your own world and you haven't done the mission impossible. So mm -hmm. it is like a difficult operation. You know, it is a difficult operation. Another way that Dugan mentions it is he says it's kind of like being a spy because a spy has to be fully assimilated to the culture where he's an agent, but he still has to preserve some sense of the identity of his homeland. Mm -hmm. And he says philosophical empathy is like that. You know, if I if I'm a citizen of philosophical homeland a but i'm trying to understand philosophical homeland b i basically have to function like a full assimilation but without losing you know without snapping the thread you know without losing the identity so it is a problem it's not easy it's not self-evident but i've done you know i have done my uh it's easy for me in a way that is not necessarily uh fair and that's not necessarily how could you put it? Like, I'm not there, you know, mm, I'm yeah. not in Russia. I'm not in Ukraine. I'm not somebody who's super deeply affected on a personal day-to-day -day level by all of the political dimensions of what Dugan is arguing. If I was just not a, you know, Canadian sitting here very far from everything, but was, you know, in Ukraine or in Russia, maybe I was a liberal in Russia, or maybe I was a nationalist in Ukraine, right? Under those circumstances, I can imagine that it would be much more difficult for me to have like a somewhat dispassionate theoretical study of his work. But it just so happens in my case that enough of the influences like Russia, I have interest in Russian mystical theology, an interest in German philosophy, you know, interest in sort of this like platonic political science. It gave me 
a dispassionate sort of access to his work by accident. Mm. And so I've just tried to make the most of it. It's a weird twist of fate. There are probably other things I could have done with my life. And there are other things that I will still do with my life. But in this case, that's sort of how it is. I got put into a mission impossible situation just because I had the, you know, I fell into it and the thread never snapped. And as best as possible, you know, I, I lowered to understand his books. I lowered to the foundation as best I could. Then I, you know, roped myself back up and there was a wash in that sense. Like no, uh, no um, loss of identity or anything like that, but it's not, you know, it's uh, the general problem is not so simple. Um, mm -hmm. It takes, it's a kind of intellectual operation that is kind of risky, but also exciting. So give me some of the things that he's currently talking about um, that might be more, you know, if he, I, I don't know what his current writings are, but you know, if he's writing something very specific, this niche that a, a general audience might not appreciate, but is he, what are some of the things he's talking about, about how he's seeing the war, Putin, the West. Um, and, and, and the reason I bring it up is because, you know, we had on Noam Chomsky a while back and, you know, his whole thing was um, talking about the language of the, of the war and how it was a war. Um, he was pushing back on the, um, an unprovoked war. He said unprovoked, unprovoked, unprovoked. And he goes, well, of course it's provoked because the NATO expansion. And he goes, he wasn't justifying Russia's invasion, but he just simply said that that language was uh, striking to him. And so, um, of course, we have other people who say, no, 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 it was, it was uh, provoked. Um, and so, so you go through the, all this stuff. And so, um, I'm curious, what is he saying about larger events that people are, are tracking? So I'll tell you how it might be different from something that Chomsky says, for example. So when Dugan talks about politics, especially when he talks about Russia's politics and you know Russia's place in the world and an event like the one that's happening now, it tends at times to it tends at times to have like an apocalyptic or religious. Uh, almost messianic as it were flavor you know where you're talking about destiny you're talking about like the battle of the angels and it's, it's a language that is very charged not only with you know economic considerations political considerations agreements that were kept or broken but with this you could say deeper significance of what it all means because you, you know, said the he's realm of orthodox meaning. right he's eastern orthodox he's yeah, so I don't know as much about his uh, orthodoxy as I do about his philosophy, okay. but he belongs, as as far as I understand, to a sect of orthodox Russians called the Old Believers. But that's not a part of his thought that I know very well, so I just mention it in passing. But definitely there is some, um, you know, his interpretations, they're like that. You know, this is a battle for Russia's destiny, not just for, you know, a piece of territory or something like that. This is a battle for the soul of a human being in some sense, because if the war is not just with Ukraine, but with the West and its values, and if the West represents a sort of degraded understanding of what it is to be human, then Russia steps on the stage here as like a defender of the essence of the human being. Mm -hmm. So it's like that. I don't think when Chomsky talks about the war, I would assume I've never heard him uh, state it in those types of terms. You know, it's more like, did Russia have a you know, justified cause and have, do they have any legitimate political grievances? Sure. So Dugan above and beyond that, he typically includes these, um, as I say, like apocalyptic or in some cases, even like eschatological end of end of history, end of days type interpretations. Uh, and that's just part of, you know, some of that is probably flourish. Some of that is also probably uh, genuine. Mm. And uh, I should say that in the last, couple of months in particular, I know uh, the timestamp on this is going to be vague, I guess, for people exactly when we're having the conversation. But let's just say like in the last over this, the last this is the recent this period, is the first few weeks of February, we're at the end of, in, end of January. So, OK, so in any in any case, I haven't been tracking him very closely in the last couple of months, to tell you the truth. Uh, I've always tried to keep something of a distance between my work on him, which I regard as primarily philosophical. Even though, you know, I end up having to talk about the politics, I still regard my work on him as prim primarily philosophical. Um, so if, for example, he's in the mode right now of like all in, um, not war propagandist, but, you know, somebody who's just reiterating old themes in light of the new situation, I haven't really been following that so closely. Sure. Instead, I've been teaching uh, Plato and Heidegger and these other figures. But just to give, again, the audience, yourself and your audience members a sense of it, um, all of the themes of his thought over the last three decades, that there's that geopolitics is a legitimate conflict between land powers and sea powers, 
and that when the American empire won the war for the world order, it's like the whole world was dominated by sea power. And the task for the reestablishment of some sort of balance or harmony or justice in the world would be the reestablishment of a force of land power in the world. For Dugan, land power is countries like Russia, first and foremost, but also Iran, also China, you know, also BRICS types countries. Basically, it's synonymous for anti-American, anti-Western. Right. So he sees this war as part of that, you know, as I mentioned, the religious dimension and these other things. And he's just continuing to make that case. Because again, everything that happens needs to be interpreted. Mm -hmm. And the realm of interpretation is the realm of how do we give it meaning? What is its significance? So a philosopher like Dugan can be helpful in providing one for, especially for, you know, the domestic audience and for other people who are quote unquote pro-Russian around the world or who want a multipolar world. He provides them with a meaningful interpretation, both of the successes and of the failures. How do we, you know, what does this tell us about what might happen? Not just, as I say, in the narrow realm of politics and economy, but in the broader realm of history, culture, destiny, and identity. So he's doing that. What will be his legacy? Well, you know, we mentioned earlier how <laughs> Plato's legacy is that some people call him proto-fascist, others call him proto-communist, others say that all Western philosophy is a series of footnotes to Plato, and people like me just read him and love him and learn from him. So he's going to have a different legacy with different people, for sure. Uh, I think that in the official, imperialistic, uh, really Russian history of Russia, He's going to be regarded as an eminent philosopher, maybe, and I won't go into the details here, but maybe in some sense as the first Russian philosopher. The reason I say that is not because no Russian speakers have ever philosophized, but because Dugan has a book arguing that they've only done Western philosophy in Russian. They haven't actually, <laughs> they haven't actually, they have not actually done Russian philosophy. So he's got a book called The Possibility of Russian Philosophy. So he may be remembered among philosophers as, you know, the first Russian philosopher. Um, but for sure, he, he'll be, he's a very, uh, the, word, the Russian word is yarki. He's a very stark, bright, uh, conspicuous, luminous um, figure in Russian po po political and public discourse. Some people will remember him as a horrible, fascistic, Rasputin reincarnation. And I think some people will recognize him as a, erudite Russian intellectual who helped to form the basis for Russia's self-identity in a post-liberal um, and post-communist world. Does he have a protege or someone coming up under the wings, maybe not directly, but indirectly who you follow? You go, yeah, this guy's taking a lot of his thoughts and building <clears throat> on it. So no, I know that he has students. Some, I guess, are closer to the inner circle. Some are further on the periphery, but uh, I don't interest, I don't concern myself with that. I don't have a big interest in it the protégés will sort out among themselves who's the who's the top dog. Um, mm. You know, I, I take his books seriously as somebody who's interested in political theory. I don't really know the ins and outs of, um, sure. of the influence and the, again, battling for position and stuff like that. I don't know. And well, by the way, I it may, it may, in, to the extent that he is first and foremost an intellectual, if that's what people think, then it may very well be that his protege is not the person standing closest to him in Russia, but it could be another very competent intellectual in Brazil or any Yeah, yeah, I, it, yeah I didn't mean to say I don't know. students. I just didn't know if there was someone who you go, oh, wow, this guy's really taking a lot of what Dugan's doing and expanding upon it. But um, yeah. Uh, no, let me just, I do want to say one thing really quickly just to give credit where it's due, which is that when I started translating Dugan about 10 years ago, I found that most of the writing on him was, uh, let's put it this way, could be better. Mm -hmm. But uh, since that time in the last couple of years, there are some young scholars who write about him with, you know, sympathy and understanding. And who are, so the work on him by scholars is getting better. In my opinion, in some cases, there are young, young, um, young guys doing good work on his thought. But again, as far as exactly the protégés or the next next in line to be uh, Putin's brain, I don't know. <laughs> what do you imagine a conversation between Putin and Dugan would be like? You know, I could imagine different kinds of conversation, one that was just strategic, you know, one that was just about what should be done here or there, what policies are working or not working, uh, you know, where you see sort of um, Dugan as the philosopher king and 
and Putin as the prince who has to implement his ideas. But I think the more interesting conversation that I can imagine between them would be one where somehow they discuss their agreements and disagreements about what it is to be Russian, about what is Russia, why is Russia, if they both think it is as they do, a force for good in the world, you know, if to see them have arguments about Russian uh, literature and the Russian soul, that's the conversation that I think would be most interesting. But I could also imagine Dugan saying, like I guess he did in 2014, uh, Mr. Putin, you know, you're not going far enough here or here or here. We should be more aggressive in this, that, and the other point. And uh, basically, having Putin be the political conduit of his philosophical ideas. Those are both possible. If you could ask Dugan, I know you've got to interview him, but if you could ask him one question, you and him over some Russian vodka, and he's going to answer it, what would it be? You know, the thing that would be most interesting for me to discuss with him, I think, is interpretations of Plato, how his differs from Strauss's. So it seems like very academic or bookish, but there's a lot at stake uh, in the interpretation of Plato, even now, even politically. And uh, I think that would be where the most interesting conversation would be. Okay. We are going to link to your website, of course, in the show notes. We have um, a link to the book. Is there anywhere else you want us to send people to? No, I think if you go to millermanschool.com, you'll see my courses. If you go to michaelmillerman.com, you know, you see my book, blog, and link to all my YouTube videos. I put out a lot of free content on YouTube about Dugan, Heidegger, Plato, Strauss, and the other figures that I read and study. So if your audience kind of enjoyed this type of conversation, they probably would enjoy following me on the YouTube channel. And uh, I do post on Twitter more than I should probably. So if anyone wants to find me on Twitter, <laughs> it's uh, M underscore Millerman or just, you know, search Michael Millerman and you'll find me there. Okay. So we're going to link to the website. We'll link to the school as well. We'll pull your Twitter up, the book. And then we also have a uh, public opinion uh, in the show notes. If listeners want to check that out as well, and I'll get your YouTube in there. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for the invitation. Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com? Helps keep the show going and ad free. Thank you so much.